Hi, this is Steve Nerlick. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, episode 106, Articles on Particles. Particles, that is, very small things, seem to play a surprisingly large role in cosmology and space science generally, with some of them known and some of them dark, meaning they're probably there, but we don't know what they are, while some other particles are just plain hypothetical. Dear Cheap Astronomy, What is a particle? Probably the best answer to this question is that particles are those things detected by particle detectors. Unfortunately, this can range from dust detected by atmospheric particle detectors to those things that are detected within the Large Hadron Collider, which are a special category being those things that particle accelerators accelerate and particle colliders collide. Most definitions of particles give them a material nature and they are sometimes, but not always, small composite parts of a larger whole. For example, subatomic particles like quarks comprise the nucleons of an atom, and atoms then comprise lots of things we are familiar with in our macro world. It gets trickier if you want to include photons in the definition, since they are clearly not matter, even though they can push on a solar sail. So you might call them massless particles with momentum, and of course they have wave-particle duality, So there can be both waves and particles, although some argue that they are neither waves nor particles, but instead different things altogether that just exhibit characteristics of both waves and particles. But then it gets even trickier, since quantum physicists will argue that electrons can also have wave-particle duality. Indeed, if you ask a quantum physicist what a particle is, you'll be told a particle is a collapsed wave function, where a particle's existence is defined by a probability wave, meaning it could be here or there, but as soon as you introduce a particle detector, that probability wave collapses, and you find a particle with a real physical presence and location. An overarching consideration here is just English language semantics which allows for a speck of dust to be a particle as much as a vastly smaller atom can be a particle. If we just focus on the realm of subatomic physics, we can identify particles which have no underlying components, which are called elemental or fundamental particles. Examples are electrons and quarks, which are generally considered to be point particles, with no apparent size or volume, in which case the word small becomes almost meaningless. In our mathematical modelling of what the real world may be like, these particles are considered to be points of quantity in a coordinate field, where a particle's mass is a coordinate in the Higgs field, and its charge is a coordinate in the electromagnetic field. Mind you, we previously assumed that atoms were the irreducibly small components of all things, but we now know that an atom is a relatively large object with a complex internal structure composed of many smaller, particular components. 
We know this from particle collider experiments, where we fling charged nuclei around a magnetised path and get them to collide with each other. So in this case, by definition, we are colliding particles to identify the smaller particles that those bigger particles are composed of. Indeed, this relationship is captured in the particle physics lexicon, which lists composite particles, like protons, composed of elemental particles, like quarks. Any list of particles includes bosons, and hence includes photons as well, although most written definitions of particles step around the photon issue, preferring to imply that particles are mostly the components of matter. So really, what is a particle? One could reasonably conclude that a particle is whatever we decide to call a particle. Even in the narrow frame of subatomic physics, there's some uncertainty about what is and isn't a particle. Notwithstanding, uncertainty is a defining characteristic of many particles. On the bright side, there are lots of things that definitely aren't particles. For example, bricks even though they are small chunks of matter that can be put together to form much bigger things. So, at the end of the day, perhaps all we can say is that if something looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, then it's probably not a particle. It's probably a duck. This is the middle bit. So, big things are made of small things, and small things are made of smaller things. But eventually you do get down to fundamental units that we used to think were atoms, but we now think are quarks, and we now think that that's as low as you can go, although that's what we thought back with atoms. But of course, we've got to see the wood as well as the trees. In other words, we need to look up sometimes. And when we do look up, what we see are particles. Dear Cheap Astronomy, What sort of astronomy is undertaken on the International Space Station? Conducting astronomy as you orbit the Earth 19 times a day, as the International Space Station does, has its challenges. But the Hubble Space Telescope orbits 15 times a day and still manages to do cutting-edge optical astronomy. Its entire design is built around the need to stay locked on a target for up to 24 hours if need be, all thanks to Hubble's pointing control system, which is composed of reaction wheels and magnetic torques. The standard line is that if the Hubble telescope was in Los Angeles, it could hold a beam of light on a dime in San Francisco. However, you just can't do this on the ISS, since it's full of moving parts people floating around, spaceships docking, the occasional engine fire to maintain orbit, all of which causes a lot of wobbling, notwithstanding the station doesn't have a pointing control system. But you can still do astronomy on the International Space Station, for example by monitoring non-optical wavelengths, as well as operating particle detectors. In these contexts, the goal is mostly just raw detection, and measurement of energy levels, rather than worry about focusing on single points to achieve long exposure times. Nonetheless, the Neutron Star Interior Composition Explorer, which NASA somehow acronyms into NICER, can actually lock onto targets, 
NISA scans the sky for X-ray emissions, and when it finds one, it can identify the source by first using the GPS satellite network to accurately time the position and location of an X-ray source, and once the position of the X-ray source is confirmed, NISA can lock on to that point in the sky using its star tracker for alignment and a motorised gimbal system. NISA generally scans three or four targets per orbit, steadily building up a database on those sources with each pass. The monitor for all-sky X-ray image, MAXI, is an instrument installed by JAXA, the Japanese space agency. It uses a different approach for X-ray astronomy, undertaking an ongoing survey of almost the entire sky as the International Space Station orbits the Earth every 96 minutes in its laterally shifting orbit. X-ray sources such as X-ray pulsars and accreting black holes are often transient events, meaning they could be easily missed if we aren't continuously scanning the sky for them. Another JAXA instrument is CALET, the Calimetric Electron Telescope which is mostly a particle detector for cosmic rays, which are composed of high-energy electrons, protons and heavier nuclei, although it can also detect gamma rays, which are high-energy electromagnetic radiation. Callet's objectives are to better understand cosmic rays and their sources, as well as to find evidence of dark matter, something it's still trying to unequivocally do. And in that same space, there's the AMS, the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer, which is a CERN instrument. Yes, those same folk that brought you the Large Hadron Collider also have a space toy. The AMS detects cosmic rays and can also detect antimatter, and as a consequence has found a remarkable number of positrons are mixed up in cosmic rays. This has raised lots of speculation about the antimatter positrons being the product of dark matter annihilation. As we've discussed previously on this podcast, the concept of dark matter annihilation does seem a bit like grasping at straws. There's certainly a hefty weight of circumstantial evidence for dark matter's existence in the rotation of galaxies and gravitational lensing, for example but it seems as though dark matter is invisible, transparent, and really only interacts with other things via gravitation, all of which makes it frustratingly difficult to observe directly. So by speculating that dark matter particles might annihilate with themselves, we at least get something to look for. Current dark matter annihilation fallout candidates range from positrons to strangelets and to axions, which are themselves largely hypothetical particles. Dark matter theorists don't seem to often talk about why dark matter might annihilate with itself in the first place. This does seem odd behaviour for particles which otherwise represent about 85% of all the matter in the universe. You'd think all that self-annihilation would start reducing its numbers somewhat. But anyway, this is how science works. We start with a few wild ideas, steadily debunk most of them, and then see what's left. So as always, it's best just to watch this space, something we can do very effectively from the International Space Station.
This is the end bit. So, there you go. While there are lots of particles down here on Earth, there's even more out there in space. Indeed, current theory has it that dark matter is actually 85% of all matter in the universe, although that's not to say it's 85% of all matter on Earth. Light matter, that is, matter that isn't dark, generally clumps densely into stars and planets, whereas weakly interacting dark matter presumably exists in huge but diffuse clouds which means that Earth may be passing through dark matter, and it through us, all the time. But we can't detect it. At least not yet. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you just want to weekly interact with us, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we promise to detect you. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlich, Cheap Astronomy.